0: When I was young, it's a while ago, I used to wet the bed. Welcome to Axe Church, by the way. (laughs) David. I love these sermons where I look at my wife and she's just like, I can't believe I married you. You (sighs) I wet the bed, okay? Um, I had a problem. I had a problem. I slept really, really soundly, and I just would not wake up to go to the restroom, usually. Okay, it's pretty rare. So I'll tell you what though. I could change a bed, like hospital corner, because every day I had to put new sheets on my bed and whatever. So my mom had me in there. She wasn't going to do it anymore. She's tired of it. So I was really good at changing the bed. So I had that going for me, and not that I'd do it ever now, but um, I did. Anyway, a special time came in my life. Um, the summer after I was in the third grade, I was, I was finally going to get to go to summer camp. Now, I don't know how many of you went to summer camp, but when I was a kid, I was really looking forward to summer camp. It was one of those rites of passage. One of those things was like, I want to go to camp. It was like hours away from my parents. I was going to be there with a bunch of other guys, and we were going to, I don't know, shoot slingshot. I didn't know what it was in my mind about what we were going to do at summer camp, you know, hunt bears or something. But I was really wanting to go to summer camp. Very excited. I was really excited. pretty excited until I realized that I had to sleep there. Obviously, I couldn't go wetting my bed in front of a bunch of my peers, you know. Um, So my mom came up with a plan. And this plan seemed ingenious at the time, okay? Diapers. Just let that sink in for a minute. My mom would get me some diapers, and I would wear diapers at summer camp around a bunch of other dudes. I certainly didn't want the other boys to know that I was a bedwetter. I certainly didn't want them to know I was wearing diapers, and I know that nowadays, like the millennials, Gen Zers, probably be super nice to you if they found out you're wearing diapers. You know, everybody's got a peanut allergy and wh- whatever, right? Like, but this was 1987, okay? We rode bikes without helmets. We, you know, seat belts were somewhat optional. Um, and getting caught wearing diapers at summer camp was essentially a social death sentence, okay? Um, yeah, it, it did not happen. Unthinkable. Unthinkable, Okay. Um, in any case, I all picked up some Depends. That's what they had. They didn't have like pull-ups. or. Well, I would have been too big for that anyway. So Depends, you know, adult diapers. Great. And uh, she decided to put them in my suitcase and send me off to camp in the mountains with all the guys. And our little trick was going to be this. I would sneak a diaper into my sleeping bag at night. And then I would put it on in my sleeping bag. And then in the morning, I would take it off inside my sleeping bag. I'm not sure what the plan was to get this sopping wet big boy-sized diaper to the garbage without anybody seeing each morning. I was just supposed to leave them at the end of the sleeping bag, just kind of building up (laughs) until it starts to slowly leak through the fabric. Mm. Our plan wasn't perfect. Let's just say that, okay? It wasn't a perfect plan. I don't know how far diaper technology has come in the past 34 years, but at the time that this was happening, diapers were made of the loudest plastic that has ever been invented. It had, like, speakers in it, okay? <laughs> so trying to be this smooth criminal in, like, you know, in the seam bag and getting this thing up onto myself during the night with nobody in this quiet cabin hearing was not easy. Not easy. Um, and then you better hope that you didn't move. You got to stay it's completely still during that because you move. Right? It's going to make that plasticky sounds like a like if you just imagine like you know chips make that sound just imagine a humongous bag of plastic doritos and you're opening it up that's what it sounds if you breathed, let alone moved. okay so you're sitting there hoping nobody knows what's going on even with all the drama the week actually went okay for a while Um, i went with the plan of leaving the wet diapers at the end of the sleeping bag and if you have never slept in a sleeping bag with a big pile of sopping wet diapers that you get to put your feet in. Mm. Luxury. Luxury. It's pretty amazing. Just luxurious. In any case, there were a couple of boys in my cabin. If my mom had met these boys, she would have described them as naughty boys. Those are naughty boys. That's what she would have said uh, about these boys. Um, You know, a little rough around the edges, bigger and stronger than me. Remember, I'm going into fourth grade, so I'm like the youngest group of kids at this camp. Um, And one of those boys later on the week decided he would look through my suitcase because he thought he lost something or some nonsense, and he thought maybe it had gone into my suitcase or whatever. And he did not find what he was looking for, but he did find my secret stash of Depends. It was perfect. One of the worst possible people that I could imagine finding out that I was a diaper-wearing sissy boy uh, just happened to be the guy that found my Depends. Um, let's just say I was feeling pretty lonely and pretty darn sad. And this is part of the story where the women are like, oh, I feel so bad for that little boy who was embarrassed. And all the guys are like, you shouldn't have been peeing your bed. But, you know. <laughs> what are you wearing diapers to camp for, bro? Like, sorry, I can't go there with you. You know, It's just the difference between men and women right there, okay? It's cool. I'm over it at this point. <sighs> I, I rarely wet the bed anymore. My wife doesn't like it, so... Here's my point. I do have a point. Wasn't it worth it either way, Dan, whether I had a point or not? (laughs) When the guy found my diapers, I was so embarrassed, and embarrassment is difficult. You ever experienced it? I mean, we spend a lot of our lives, especially as young people, in fear of embarrassment. Like, that's the worst thing that could possibly happen. It's difficult. But I was thinking about our study for today. (laughs) And I realize that to some extent, that's how some people feel about the Bible. They'd be embarrassed to carry their Bible to work, to have their Bible sitting on the front seat of their car and have some people see it, to go to the Starbucks and, and bring out a Bible and read it in front of everybody. Some people feel really embarrassed about that. And I'm actually not here to make those people feel bad about the fact they feel embarrassed. It's actually a different point I want to make. My point is the reason they feel embarrassed. They feel embarrassed because being serious about the Bible has become as socially uncool as wearing diapers at summer camp. They're on about the same level. Maybe worse. Maybe worse. And why is that? Why is it that society and culture have look on people who are serious about the scriptures with that kind of disdain to where there's so much embarrassment about it with people? I'll tell you why. Because the Bible is a sword. Okay, it cuts. Listen, Hebrews four twelve through 13. For the word of God is living and powerful and sharper than any two-edged sword, piercing even to the division of soul and spirit and of joints and marrow, and is a discerner of the thoughts and intents of the heart. And there is no creature hidden from his sight, but all things are naked and open to the eyes of him to whom we must give account. The Bible is truth. It is naked, blinding truth. And it contains the word of God, and it brings accountability, and it brings judgment, along with grace. But people don't like that. We don't like accountability and judgment. None of us like that. So one of the projects, the big projects of the devil and of many, many people has been to attempt to undermine the Scripture. People have attempted to destroy the witness of the Holy Spirit through the Scripture in many ways, in many ways. They've tried to question the truthfulness of the Scripture. It's just not true, right? Uh, They've accused the scriptures of being inconsistent. They've claimed the scriptures are not original or have been translated over and over, so we can't really know what they say. And ultimately, and maybe most effectively, all that stuff out, they have accused those who seek to live in obedience to God by following the scriptures of being uncool, old-fashioned, and downright dumb. So you have to overcome that if you're going to be serious about the scriptures. Then we have those who we've been talking about for a while, the progressive Christians, right? Those who hold some or all of those beliefs that we've been walking through and studying over the last several weeks in this White Lies and Half-Truths series. They claim they do like the scriptures. But they make lots of the same claims that the people who are enemies of the scriptures make. We read last week about this woman, remember, who, who interviewed uh, the famous atheist Christopher Hitchens, and she was all too happy to say, oh, I love the Bible. I got my grandma's Bible at home, um, and I still read it, and, and I love it. But she didn't actually believe the scriptures were literally true. It was like, there's a metaphorical sense of floaty, bubbly, whatever, right? That was kind of her thing. And Hitchens' response, remember, was this. This is what Hitchens said. I would say that if you don't believe that Jesus of Nazareth was a Christ and Messiah— And that he rose again from the dead, and by his sacrifice our sins are forgiven, you're not really in any meaningful sense a Christian. If she doesn't believe that the Bible is true and stand by it, what is she doing calling herself a Christian? Even an atheist could see that. But progressive Christians often do that. They do just that. Oh, I love the Bible. I just don't follow it or believe the things that it says. And it's like, well, I'm not sure that word love means what you think it means. They want to retain the Scriptures for what they want them to say, but they want to reject the Scriptures where they disagree with them. Who doesn't? Right? Who doesn't? That's the problem. That's why we need the Scriptures. In the first place, we need the Scriptures because they show us our failures and the places where we would like them to say something different, and the Scriptures come up against us and push up against us and transform us. We need them to do that. If we're transforming them, they're not transforming us. It's not happening. Pharisees in Jesus' time did something similar. They saw what they wanted to see in the Scriptures, but they missed the whole point. All the things in the Scriptures that made them more kind of powerful and important and, and made them kind of important in the marketplace and walk around with the nice clothes and people say, oh, Rabbi, teacher. All of those things about the Scripture they liked, but they missed the entire point that the whole Scripture is about Jesus because they saw what they wanted to see. John five thirty nine through 40 You search the Scriptures... For in them you think you have eternal life, but these are they which testify of me, Jesus says. But you are not willing to come to me that you may have life. All the script they loved the scriptures. If anybody loved the scriptures, it was the Pharisees, according to them. And yet they were the ones who most missed the scriptures, that they were about Jesus, and they refused to recognize him and to follow God when he came They were unwilling to follow and obey Jesus Christ. And the whole Bible that they say they love is about Jesus from the beginning to the end. The whole thing. They don't want Jesus as Lord, they want themselves as Lord. That's the problem with the Pharisees. That's the problem with progressive Christianity. And that can be the problem for us sometimes. It's not just them, we can be that way too. Progressive Christianity is sort of an attempt to keep the scriptures in name only, but have none of the substance. Now, it's easy and popular to be a progressive Christian because you can call yourself a Christian and still get along with the world completely. Pretty easy way to go. And I want to talk about a couple of words that progressive Christians associate with people like you and me, and that they want to stay as far away from as they can possibly stay. Okay, one of those words is the word evangelical. In fact, there's now a term called exvangelical. That's cute, right? I used to be an evangelical, but I'm smart now. That's what it means um, to let them know, to let people know that you've moved beyond, you've progressed beyond evangelicalism. The other word is fundamentalist. It just sounds bad, doesn't it? To be called a fundamental, you're a fundamentalist. Let me just tell you, I put the fun in fundamentalist. Okay. They don't want to be associated with that term. Let me help you understand what these words mean and you can decide for yourself whether they're bad things or not. Evangelical is a word that comes from the Greek. It's a word that basically means good news or the gospel. Evangelicals are people who believe in the gospel. That's what evangelicals are. Normally that means an emphasis on trying to see people come to know Jesus to get saved, baptized, and follow him with their lives. That's that's generally what evangelical has always meant. As a word, okay. There are lots of people who have now started to use that word to describe all kinds of groups uh, of people, or even or even they use it in a political sense, evangelicals as some sort of a voting block or something like that. Uh, But that's not what the word evangelical means or should mean. According to its normal meaning, every serious Christ follower should be an evangelical, which is to say, believe in the gospel and proclaiming the gospel. Everyone who follows the Great Commission, that verse that's out there on the wall, is the evangelical. Listen, Matthew 28, 18 through 20. By the way, if you, want, if you don't have a Bible, they're in those. You can see them in the seats in front of you. If you don't have one at home, uh, or yours is broken, or you know, whatever, feel free to take one of those home with you. And uh, if you haven't been reading it, it might be that it's broken. That might be the problem. And so just get a new one, um, and then you can start reading it. But you feel free to take one of those home with you as our gift. Matthew 28, 18 through 20. And Jesus came and spoke to them, saying, All authority has been given to me in heaven and on earth. Go, therefore, and make disciples of all the nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe all things that I have commanded you. And, lo, I am with you always, even to the end of the age. Amen. That's evangelical. Right? Make disciples, baptize them, teach them to obey Christ. That's evangelical. If you think the Great Commission applies to you, you are an evangelical. who The rest of the meanings applied to that term by the world should not change the real meaning of the word. The evangelical has nothing to do with politics or style of worship. It has to do with the good news, the gospel. That's what it's about. The gospel of Jesus Christ, that people can be saved from their sins, forgiven and free and have everlasting life. That's what it's about. Through the death, burial and resurrection of Jesus Christ, you bet I'm an evangelical. In in the terms that I just explained, I am. And all of us should be. Now, fundamentalism, a little difference, defined by Merriam-Webster Online as a movement in 20th century Protestantism emphasizing the literally interpreted Bible as fundamental to Christian life and teaching. B, it says, the beliefs of this movement, and C, it says, adherence to such beliefs. At its most basic, fundamentalism is belief in the fundamentals, right? In the fundamentals. If you you, uh, believe that things are what they say they are, Right? If you believe in the fundamentals... For instance, let's just say you have a cookbook. Okay, You're doing a recipe. And in the cookbook, it says two cups of sugar. You need to put in two cups of sugar. Now, if you believe what the, what the cookbook means is you need to put in two cups of sugar, you're a fundamentalist. Now, if you believe that two cups of sugar is actually... That the recipe is actually some sort of a metaphor for the failings of modern corporate systems and whatever, then you're not a fundamentalist. Then you're bringing crazy different interpretations to things, and you don't believe in the fundamentals. But most people are fundamentalists. Whether they understand that or not, most people believe that there are fundamentals, standards for what they believe. Fundamentalists believe in fundamentals. They believe that there are actually standards, objective and important standards. That the river's got banks. The water doesn't just flow wherever it wants to flow. Okay? Okay. Some people want to get rid of that kind of thing because they want to say, who's really right? Who who can really say who's right? There's so many people that believe so many different things. My answer is, yes, there are so many people who believe so many different things. And some of them are right, and some of them are wrong. That's what a fundamentalist believes. They believe in the scriptures. They believe in what they say. That is to say that fundamentalists interpret the Bible literally. We interpret the Bible literally. Now, Lord willing, in just a minute, I'm going to explain what I mean by literally. But if fundamentalist is, is taking the Bible and what it says seriously, then I guess I'm a fundamentalist, okay? But I'm not so much really an evangelical or a fundamentalist. I'm a Christ follower. The other things are just labels that people put on things. As a Christ follower, I believe that the Bible is true. Everything in it is true. Words that we use like evangelical or fundamentalist or whatever that we use to label people tend to harm people. They don't tend to help. They tend to get really confused over time, and we don't know what they mean, and they tend to hurt rather than help. So I'm not big on the labels. As far as these two labels that are very disliked, especially among progressive Christians, um, I don't need them. You don't need them. I don't really care about them. What I do care about is what they mean, which is that I believe in the gospel and want to proclaim the gospel, and I want to live it out. That I believe in the Scripture, that I want to teach the Scripture, that I want to live it out. Those are things that are important. Some evangelicals or fundamentalists may say things that they should not say. And so what happens is they go, look at this person who claims to be an evangelical fundamentalist Christian. He said, usually he, rarely is it she that says something dumb, that women tend to be a little smarter about that kind of thing, but he said this thing. And they go, see, that's what fundamentalists believe. The fact that a person who calls themselves something says something does not mean that all those other people are also that thing, okay? Uh, Let me give you an example, okay? Um, I am a man, but that doesn't mean that I'm a plumber. But you say, wait a second, some plumbers are men, so all men must be plumbers. No, that's the kind of stuff that happens, right? One evangelical fundamentalist is a bigot, or is a this, or is a that. Therefore, they all are. No, because that thing has nothing to do with what evangelicalism, or fundamentalist, or Christ-following, or Christian means, but that's what people try to do with labels. So be careful with that, but also don't be afraid of it. Don't be afraid of it. Progressive Christians tend to be more motivated in saving people from evangelicalism and fundamentalism than saving people from hell, mostly because a lot of them don't believe in hell. But that seems to be their thing. You won't find many progressive Christians actually evangelizing to see people get saved but you'll see a lot of them evangelizing to pull people out of Bible-believing churches and into something different. Now, both people who would call themselves evangelicals and people who would call them fundamentalists have this one core thing that is what I actually want to talk about today, and that is this view of the Scriptures that we talked about, right? Believing the Word of God. Believing what the scriptures say. 2 Timothy 3.16. All scripture is given by inspiration of God and is profitable for doctrine, for reproof, for correction, for instruction in righteousness. We believe that at Acts Church. Here's our written belief on the Bible taken from our website. The Bible. We affirm that the Bible, both Old and New Testaments, though written by men, was supernaturally inspired and written by God through men, so that all its words are are the written and true revelation of God. It is therefore inerrant in the original documents and completely authoritative. So, let's deal with a couple of issues. And this is really part B from last week. So if, you're, if you really want to understand everything I'm saying, you weren't here last week, you probably need to go back online and watch that one, because I kind of walked through why we're talking about this. But a couple of things. The validity of Scripture, and then how to interpret the Bible. Okay, And I'm kind of going to go kind of short with both. But there are many misconceptions about the Bible about whether this is actually something true that really has come to us in its original form, and so on. There's a guy named uh, Kurt Eichenwald. And in a Newsweek article in December of 2014, he wrote this. No television preacher has ever read the Bible Neither has any evangelical politician, neither has the Pope. Neither have I, and neither have you. At best, we've all read a bad translation, a translation of translations of translations, of hand-copied copies of copies of copies of copies, and on and on hundreds of times. That's what he says about the Bible in Newsweek. And this is a fairly common misconception among mostly under-educated internet trolls. That's where you see this mostly. Just being honest, that's where you see it mostly. I'm not surprised, though, that it ended up being printed in in a mainstream magazine like Newsweek because when people say something enough, even on the Internet, people start to believe it, right? And so let me just set the record straight about some things. When you read the Bible, you are not reading a bad translation. In fact, the translations, if you have uh, one of the uh, normal versions, the NKJB, the ESV, the ISV, those types of things, if you have one of those... uh, um, versions, you have a very, very good translation. And it's not a translation from a translation from a translation from a translation. It is a single translation into English from the original languages of the Bible. That's how it's done. This is not like, well, we'll take the new King James. is not, I'll take the old King James and make it. The, no, it's a new translation. Uh, what happens is this. English, I don't know if you've noticed this, but words tend to change meanings over time. Right? There was a time when saying something like, like the word gay meant happy. Right? I don't remember what it means now, but it it meant something different back then, right? There's a lot of words like that. And so what you see is over time, from time to time, we do new translations from the biblical languages to English because English is changing some, right? But they're not translations of a different English translation. They're translations from the original language. So when you have one of these Bibles, like one of the ones in the seats here, you have an original translation from the original languages, That's what we have. There's no translations of translations. That's just not true. Just false. Okay? Um, As far as hand copies, where he talks about copies, that's true. Uh, and, And I'll tell you, it's a real problem. I wish that the apostles would have used a typewriter, but they weren't invented until the 1800s, and so all they could do was handwrite. So they're bad. But that's what they did, right? And because that's the only way (coughs) they could do it, they were actually very, very careful about it. Very, very careful about it. We have more attestation, okay, proof, which is to say manuscripts, copies of the original documents of these. Okay, so you have the originals. The originals are gone. Nobody has the actual page that John wrote his gospel on because they wrote on things like animal skin and things like that, and those things are gone, you know? Decomposition, things like that happen. But right away, those things were copied and copied and copied and copied from the originals, and we have literally thousands and thousands and thousands of those early copies. In fact, Clay Jones says, the New Testament remains in a class by itself. It is by far the most attested ancient work. By far. When you read the Iliad or the Odyssey by Homer, you pretty much think what you're reading is what was written. And you're probably right. It's probably pretty close to the original. But the Iliad, which is the second most, the, the, the book out there that has the second most number of copies, doesn't even come close to the number of copies that the New Testament has. Okay, And so we read all kinds of ancient documents, from Aristotle to Pliny the Elder, et cetera, and we assume they're pretty accurate, and they probably are even though none of the originals of those exist. There are no original documents like that from that time, okay, um, of any of these, these books that I'm talking about. But the number of the New Testament manuscripts and the closeness in time from when they were first written down to being copied and so on, it's so, it's so ridiculously more significant than any other ancient writing that there is no question that what you have in this bible is accurate it is accurate everybody believes that whether whether they're now i'm talking about scholars not internet trolls scholars whether they're christians atheists whatever they admit they agree even bart Ehrman, who's all you know against the bible and whatever went from he's an ex-evangelical i think anyway he's against, but he would still tell you that what you have here in this book is accurate that there is not one issue of theological importance of faith and practice, of whatever, that has been not brought to us from what was there originally written down. So when somebody says, oh, no one's ever read the Bible, that's just not true. You are reading the Bible, the accurate Bible, when you read this. Now, you're reading it in English. Obviously, it's a, it's a translation from the original languages to English. But you are reading the Bible accurately. It's just not True. Don't listen to people who say things like that. Or if they do, show them the 800 PhDs that are biblical studies uh, professors who will say, that's ridiculous. The Bible is the most well-attested ancient book. Period. We also have a wealth of historical and archeolo- archaeological evidence that validates and verifies the Scripture. Okay? Bottom line, scholars of the Bible whether they believe in God or not, whether they're, you know, politically this way or that, whether they're, you know, whatever, from whatever side they come from, they all say the same thing about the accuracy of what we have in the Bible. Now, you'll also hear that the books in the Bible were written long hundreds of years after these events happened. Again, not true. Every book in the New Testament was written in the first century. If you're wondering, that's the century when the events happened. All of those books are written in the first century. Now, when you think about trying to remember something, remember it accurately, I would say that the closer to the time that the thing happened, the more likely you are to remember it accurately. Probably true, right? We call that, in the law, we call that contemporaneous notes. If we can find that someone took contemporaneous notes, notes about what happened, near the time that it happened, we will use those, even if their later testimony is different, we're more likely, and a jury is more likely to think that what happened was what was was written in those contemporaneous notes. The Bible's like that, contemporaneous notes. It's not long, 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 long after. There are some history books that are written like that. The Bible is not like that. Contemporaneous, very short period of time. Now, I, I went into a lot of depth. I didn't want to redo a sermon that I did about five or six years ago, in 2016. But the very first skeptics form, there's one on the reliability of scripture. I think it's number four in that series. So go to the app or go to the website or whatever, and you can hear all the numbers and all the stuff about how many documents we have and all that kind of stuff. It's really fascinating. Actually, some of those numbers have changed since then because we have found some more of the Iliad and some more of this. But nothing in terms of what we found of these other ancient things has even gotten to come close to the number of manuscripts we have in the New Testament. And I'm not even talking about the translations, which is to say, they, the Greek New Testament, we have, I think, five or 6,000 existing copies. And then from those, at the time, they translated them into Latin. They translated them into these different languages. And we have like fifteen or 20,000 of those that are really, really old, too. So it's just, there's just such a wealth of information for us to be able to take it and make sure the Bible is accurate that when people come against the validity of the Bible or say that what we have is not what they said or what they meant, it is not true. Do not believe it. But this is what a lot of progressive Christians are starting to believe. Let's talk for a minute about why we interpret the Bible literally and what we mean by that, by literally. So when we say we interpret the Bible literally, what we mean is we interpret the Bible according to the type of literature that it is. The Bible is actually a lot of books, Put together, right? And there are different kinds. There's there's prophetic books. There are books, of the Psalms, right? So there's poetry and songs. There's a whole bunch of songs in the Bible. Uh, There's a lot of history. There's moral instruction. There's all these different things. So when we say we're we're literally, we take it according to the type of literature that's there, and then we interpret it literally according to what was trying to be said. So if we're reading something historical and it says, this happened on this day and this guy did it, we believe this happened on this day and this guy did it because it's a historical piece of literature, and they're talking about history. But if we're in the psalm somewhere, and they're using a metaphor, or a simile, or a poetic language, then we interpret it literally by saying, this was poetic and intended to mean, intended to, uh, to explain something about God or whatever in that kind of a form. It's an example, etc. cetera. So that's all that interpreting the Bible literally means. Reading it like anyone would read it. Like anyone would read anything. If Jesus teaches us to love our enemies and our neighbors— We believe what he means is love our enemies and our neighbors. It's that simple. That's what being a fundamentalist and interpreting the Bible literally means. We believe what it says, and we don't believe that we have to bring anything to the text to try to interpret it to mean something other than what it says. If it's poetry, we interpret it as poetry. Okay. If it's history, we interpret it as history. Now, there are at least two ways to interpret a text. There are actually a number, but there are at least two. One of them it's called exegesis. Exegesis. You do not have to remember that. There's not a quiz after this. Maybe there should be. No. Exegesis basically means that we read the Bible for what it says and we let it mean what it says. We draw the meaning out. So we think that the meaning is here and we draw it out. That's exegesis, okay? Another way to interpret it is called eisegesis. They sound very similar. Yeah, I think we'll, we'll do a quiz. Let's get that quiz ready if you know. Eisegesis basically means that you're bringing something from yourself to the Scripture, like an interpretive framework to the Scripture to sort of have the Scripture say what you're trying to get it to say. So eisegesis is different from exegesis, okay? Some people will read the Bible with a 21st century cultural framework and and force the Bible to fit into their cultural framework. Well, Jesus couldn't have meant that. We don't talk like that. We don't think that kind of thing. So what he really must have meant is this. That's eisegesis. It happens all the time. Let me tell you one of the most famous examples. One of the most popular verses in our culture is Matthew 7.1, where Jesus says in the Sermon on the Mount, judge not that you be not judged. Okay? If you read that verse out of context and assume all kinds of things about the word judge, you could interpret it as to mean we can't judge anyone or anything ever. Right? If you just pull it out, no context, no understanding, no understanding of the language, no understanding of what the word judge means, then that's what it means. Don't judge. Don't judge anything ever. But that can't be what it means for a lot of reasons. But one of the simplest is that 14 verses later, Jesus tells us to judge. Matthew 7, 15 through 20. Beware of false prophets who come to you in sheep's clothing, but inwardly they are ravenous wolves. You will know them by their fruits. How do you know their fruits? You got to judge them. Do men gather grapes from thorn bushes or figs from thistles? Even so, every good tree bears good fruit, but a bad tree bears bad fruit. A good tree cannot bear bad fruit, nor can a bad tree bear good fruit. Every tree that does not bear good fruit is cut down and thrown into the fire. Therefore, by their fruits you will know them. This is literally a passage telling you to look at the fruits of people and judge whether they are good or bad. So if he meant in that verse just, I mean, he'd have to just be all over the place because he just said, don't judge. So what does he mean? Well, it must mean something a little different than people try to make it. You have to understand context. You have to understand that words can have nuanced meanings. For example, my former law partner, Will Roach, is a judge. He judges for a living. But he's not judgmental. But he is a judge. And he judges all the time. But he's not doing Matthew 7, 1 type judging. So how is that? Well, we judge all the time. You judge all the time. Somehow, this verse only gets brought up with a very particular type of judging. A judgment that you make about something that the teachings of Scripture might say about the behavior of somebody else. That's when this gets brought up. Soon as you do that, you're going to hear them. Judge not. Jesus said, Judge not. Who are you to judge? That's what they'll say, right? They never say that when I make a judgment about the kind of ice cream I like best. They never say, it never comes up, but I'm judging or if I make a judgment about something that they also think is morally wrong, somehow it never comes up, right? If you're like, hey, this thing is bad, and they agree with you, it's like, yeah, that's bad. Most people are bad. But when you say, you know, this thing you're doing might not be great, judge not. Judge not. Person says, hey, you're uh, stealing from your employer. I'm gonna show you how quickly this gets absurd. You're stealing from your employer, you ought not to do that. And the other person says, judge not. Who are you to judge? So the guy goes, "Um, so is it wrong to judge? And the first person says, absolutely. You're not allowed to judge. So the first person says, so you're judging me for judging you? And they go, yeah. Wait, no. I don't know. I just want to steal from my employer because that's really what's going on. Right? You can't even use it without judging. So obviously it doesn't mean that. In this case, it's about using a particular standard. It's about being unfair. It's about being hypocritical. It's about being condemnatory of people and standing in the place of Jesus as the actual judge of all of us. But it's not saying don't use a sermon and don't use judgment. And it's not saying we shouldn't judge what people are doing. We're actually told very specifically in the scripture that we are to judge within the church, right? You should be judging me. If I come up here and I do something wrong, you should judge, not to condemn, to help me transform. It's an act of grace and love to judge. But they don't understand that because they have eisegesis. They take it out of context so they can use it to do the thing they want to do, which in this case often is just protecting their own violation of the Scriptures. Okay, That's eisegesis. You use the Scriptures to say what you want them to say. Instead of studying and using a literal translation and accurately knowing what the Scripture actually says, exegesis, if you're wondering how to really balance them, exegesis is hard. It takes a lot of work. Eisegesis is easy. It takes no work. It's the kind of thing where you can flip through and be like, boom, there's a verse. It must mean what God wants me to say today. I know we've all done that, so I'm not dogging anybody. But my dad used to tell a joke where he'd say, you know, I was wondering what to do and so uh, about these girls. And so I went through the thing, and I put my finger on it and said, you shall go out with joy. And so I'm going to go out with joy, right? That type of thing, right? <laughs> I'm wondering whether, you know, we should use marijuana. And smoke filled the temple. Well, I, you know, I... <laughs> <laughs> Eisegesis, okay? Do not quote me as if I was using that passage to suggest that. Some guy in the back like, oh, so I shouldn't... All right, I'll put that back We do the hard work, okay, of studying the scriptures literally using exegesis to determine what the Bible says. Whether we like it or not. We're not going to always like it. If we always liked it, we'd already be perfect and we wouldn't need Jesus. Well, let me tell you something. I've met a lot of you. You're not perfect. You do need Jesus, just like me. I am definitely not perfect and I definitely need Jesus. I can't be telling the scripture what it should say. It has to tell me. It has to tell me. Scriptures can say all kinds of things if you want to use eisegesis. So when we talk about a literal interpretation of the Bible, what we mean is there is a standard. There is a standard. And the Bible, we're trying to draw out what the Bible says. We're trying to let the Bible push up against us, not take the Bible and start and make it riffing pages out and make it say what we want it to say. In one way, we honor God. and the other way, we honor ourselves. God tells us the truth. We do not get to tell him what we think the truth ought to be. It's not how it works. In the end, what liberal and progressive, again, these are not political terms if this is your first week. These are terms about Christianity and, and different things people believe. But liberal and progressive Christians, what they do to the Scripture is arrogant, prideful, and rebellious. That's what it is. When they don't like what Scripture says, When it's not the way they think God should be, or not oftentimes it's not the way they would be. And so they don't think God should be that way either. Then they just say, I don't believe it. Or they attack the reliability of scripture. They say we can't know. Or they say that's not what it really means. Instead, we should show some humility before God. We know the scriptures are accurate. It doesn't take a genius to be able to to read and understand. It just takes some hard work. We can understand the scriptures. God sees the beginning from the end. He knows everything. We don't. If you don't understand something and there are things you are not going to understand, you got to trust God. If you think God should be a different way, tough. He's not asking you. He's telling you. This is important because we're used to kind of being independent, right? Americans, we do what we want to do. You, know, you don't tell me what to do. God's like, you know, I am I, going to. I'm going to tell you what to do, because I made you, because I know what's best for you, because I love you. He's the creator of the universe. Listen, Romans 11, Oh, the depth of the riches, both of the wisdom and the knowledge of God. How unsearchable are his judgments, his ways past finding out. You will not understand everything, because you're not God. There are things that you won't understand. God can say to us the way it is, and we have to accept it. This is what he said to Job. Then the Lord answered Job out of the whirlwind. This is Job 38, 1 through 4. And said, who is this who darkens counsel by words without knowledge? Now prepare yourself like a man. Take that diaper off. No, that's not it. It's my interpretation. Eisegesis. I will question you and you shall answer me. Where were you when I laid the foundations of the earth? Tell me if you have understanding. Kind of puts us in our place a little bit. Oh, can you make a tree? No, then shut up. (laughs) Don't tell me how to be God. Understand who we are and be humble. I'm not saying God tells us to shut up, but at some level, a little bit, when he says, prepare yourself like a man, that's literally what it literally means is gird up your loins. Now, I don't know how many of you men have ever worn basically a dress like they, do, like they did back then. You know, they have this tunic and it goes down. But girding up your loins, you got that thing, and you pulled it up and you tied it around or whatever, so that you could run and move and whatever. It was, it was, When a man was ready to, to do his thing, fight or whatever, you had to gird up your loins. He's saying, look, prepare yourself like a man. You think you can come against me? You think you're better than me? You're not. Where were you when I laid the foundations of the earth? In the book of Isaiah, we read, For my thoughts are not your thoughts. This is Isaiah 55, 8-9. Nor are your ways my ways, says the Lord. For as the heavens are higher than the earth, a lot higher, by the way. So my ways are higher than your ways, and my thoughts than your thoughts. How much higher are God's thoughts? A lot higher. He knows a lot more. So if you're questioning Scripture, struggling with Scripture, and you will, if you want to study it, you're going to struggle with it. You just need to continue to work hard and harder and harder to study and understand God. He loves you, and he wants you to be close to him and know him through his word. But it takes work. Anyone who's married, who's ever had a girlfriend or a relationship of any kind, knows that if you want any kind of depth to that relationship, you've got to put in some work. You've got to put in some work. You want to see a thriving marriage? You're going to see two people working hard. You want to see a thriving relationship between you and God? Work. That's how it works. Don't reject it when it gets hard. Don't reject it when it becomes embarrassing. Oh, you believe that? You believe what the Bible says about that? Well, you're uh, fill in the blank. Look, you live in the Northwest, folks. It's not going to be easy. But people have had it harder. You have not resisted to the shedding of blood. Okay. But yeah, you're going to be a little embarrassed sometimes if you want to be serious about the Scripture. And you know what? You standing up and being willing to be embarrassed might just be the thing that, that, ticks, that tips for the person that you're talking to that makes them take Jesus seriously and, and they get saved. Standing strong has this incredible ability to make people respect. Reading the Bible can be a joy. You know, I had a, I had a little phase there where I just was not getting into the word other than to, to preach and to prepare for that for a little while. And I wasn't doing that morning thing where I get up and do it. And I was like, no, I've got to get back to it. I got back to it. I mean, man, I am once again just loving it. It's that morning time with the Lord, just spending time in the scriptures. I know it's hard. I know that it's, like I said, I've had those times where I've fallen off of it. If you have, get on it few chapters a day, man, it's amazing what it can do. It's amazing how the love of the scripture comes back to you. Have some humility before God. Please don't assume you need to correct him. He's doing okay. It might be socially embarrassing to be serious about the Bible, and that's certainly the way progressive Christians feel. I think that's part of why they reject it. But in the scriptures, we read of life and life more abundantly, and we read of it nowhere else. That's where it is. We have a Savior. Jesus has paid the price for your sins. If you don't know him today, he's paid the price for your sins. You don't have to be under judgment. If you don't know him, if you're not a follower of him, you are under judgment, but you don't have to be. You don't have to walk out of here today under judgment. Romans 10, 9, that if you confess with your mouth the Lord Jesus and believe in your heart that God has raised him from the dead, you will be saved. Confess Jesus is Lord of your life and believe that he is alive, that God raised him from the dead, and you will be saved. He will forgive you. The blood of Jesus will cover your sin and you will be perfect before Him. Where do we know? Why do we know that? It's in the scriptures. What if these aren't accurate? What if these are invalid? What if it's not really? What if it's just an interpretation of interpretation of interpretation? What if it's copies of copies? What if we don't know? What if whatever? Then you are in big trouble. Because the way we know what Jesus has taught us. And what his apostles have taught us through the Holy Spirit is in the Scriptures. We reject this book. There's no hope for you. Because I can tell you the one thing that I know without any Bible, human beings are under judgment. A holy God could not possibly spend any time or have any relationship with human beings. We're broken. So the only way you can have that relationship is if we're made pure and clean and holy. And the only way that that could happen is what he did that we read about here, that he sent his son Jesus Christ to die for your sins. And that he rose him from the dead, defeating sin and death and hell, and that you can be free in him. And if the scriptures aren't true, then I hate to tell you, but that ain't true. And if that ain't true, we are sad folks. If that ain't true, eat, drink, and be merry, for tomorrow you die. Under judgment. But it is true, because the scriptures are true. If the progressive Christians who want to twist scripture succeed, they will succeed in taking away everything of meaning about who Jesus Christ is. Well, they won't succeed, because they've come and gone many times of different stripes and with different names, and somehow the scriptures remain. They remain, and faithful people like you, have continued to stand on them, even against the culture and the difficulty. And they will continue to remain until Jesus comes back to get us and come quickly, Lord Jesus. It's the good news, guys. It's the gospel. That's what's in the scriptures. They're important because they're about the King of Kings and the Lord of Lords. They're about Jesus the Messiah. Know the scriptures, know Jesus, be saved and follow him. Let's pray. Father, I just ask that you would be with us, Lord, this week. As we go out into the world, Lord, I pray that we would each one of us would get into your scripture, would know it more, would find the life that's there. God, you've shown us so much. And yet, so many of us go astray, and some of our brothers and sisters have started to go astray into things like progressive liberal Christianity, where all the substance gets lost. And Lord, before they go down that road, I pray you'd give us the opportunity for those who are in our lives, that we might draw them back to the fundamentals of the faith, to the truth of your word. God, anything that would attempt to diminish your glory. Of course, no one can diminish your glory, but anyone who would attempt to do so, Lord, I pray that you would correct them, bring them back to you. Lord, I pray for all those who are sick, who haven't been able to come and be with us since COVID. I pray that they could come back. I pray you'd heal this world, get us back to normal, get us to the point where we can look at each other's smiles again. God, we love you. We trust you. You have not given us a spirit of fear, but of love and of power and of a sound mind. Lord, let me rest in you, this diaper sissy boy with all kinds of problems and troubles, and I'm nothing without you, Lord. I thank you for all that you've done. I thank you that you see me as one made in your image and likeness, as you see everyone here and everyone that's online and everyone that will listen to this later. And I pray that we'd be drawn to you, that your Holy Spirit would do the work of drawing.